This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Sarah Medeiros. Welcome back to EM Pulse. So for this month's Heartbeat, I caught up with one of the smartest, most dynamic, and most capable docs I know, Dr. Rod Fontenet. Now, he is a very busy man, and he is tough to pin down, but his life and his stories are fascinating. So I'm going to let him introduce himself and do most of the talking as he shares some of his passion and experiences as a military emergency medicine physician. My name is Rod Fontanet. I'm active duty Air Force uh, as an emergency medicine slash critical care medicine physician. Um, Lieutenant Colonel in the Air Force. I've been in, wow, seems like I think just over 18 years now. Uh, transitioned from a jet engine mechanic to a medic now a doc. So I've been in for a little while. The reason why I'm here is as an associate residency director for our Air Force Emergency Medicine residents. So I'm in the, obviously in the emergency department. Uh, I've done time, some time in the SICU. Finally about to start in the neuro ICU uh, as well as the CT ICU. So yeah, so kind of branching out a little bit. And as you can imagine, with all of those credentials, Rod has had to do quite a bit of training to get where he is now. Yeah, so uh, med school, obviously back at LSU, uh, then I did an emergency medicine residency and one of the uh, then two uh, Air Force residencies. We had one in San Antonio, and then I trained at the program in Dayton, Ohio. So it was kind of like the same thing here. It was a partnership between the Air Force and Wright State University. So three-year EM residency there. Uh, and then I went on from there to Indianapolis at Methodist Hospital and did a two-year multidisciplinary critical care fellowship. I think I boarded in all those and then went from there to Cincinnati. Because in order for you to fly on these missions, the Air Force wants to make sure people are trained appropriately, right? So the University of Cincinnati and the Air Force has a really good partnership where active duty military folks come and do a two-week training program there to basically learn how to take care of patients at altitude. And then we run you through some very rigorous and stressful low-light simulations, uh, but we turn the lights off. You may have a green light kind of on and loud. Like, so we put speakers in the room and just like pump in loud aircraft engine noise. So not only are you dealing with the, I've never worked in this environment before. I don't know the people yet that I'm working with. This is a high-stress environment. People are watching me through the cameras here, and these patients are really sick. I'm space confined and I can't just I can't just speak to my team, right? Because it's too loud. Right. So now we have headsets on and I'm talking to you through a headset. Right. But what happens when that headset, the batteries die, which it does sometimes. Now I have problems because now I have to scream and hopefully you hear me. Right. So that's a problem. Uh, and again, it's those teams, those specialized teams or CCAT teams, uh, critical care air transport teams. There's only three of you. It's a doc. It's a nurse and a respiratory therapist. Well, you could have up to three intubated patients, right, which is a lot, <laughs> or six really sick patients, right? So to say that I'm a doc and starting an IV or doing an A-line or whatever the case may be is not in my wheelhouse, that doesn't fly, right? Because you and the other members on your team will get pretty task-saturated with really sick patients. So everyone has to kind of cross-train, right? So I have to be able to trust the nurse. I have to be able to trust my respiratory therapist and have to be able to trust me. That's why I like to focus a lot and I hop on a ventilator, right? It's this thing we say, trust but verify, right? So, yes, my, the respiratory therapists are amazing. But what happens when that respiratory therapist gets busy troubleshooting a vent on patient A, then patient B is also on a vent and has issues? I can't just stand back and wait for the respiratory therapist to get freed up. So I have to be able to understand the vent, right? So when we have the pumps, right, and we know how annoying those stupid pumps could be in the ED, right, with drips, 
to be quite honest, sometimes I just walk up, push the button, and walk off, and hopefully somebody else comes back. Well, at 30,000 feet, I can't just walk around pushing random buttons, right? So I have to know why this thing is alarming and be able to troubleshoot it, right? Again, I would hope the nurse could come over, but if they're busy, they're busy, right? And as the team lead, you can't just say, that's not my thing, right? Because it's everybody's thing. Uh, And these soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines are counting on this being everybody's thing, right? So you have to kind of really own your patience. Yeah, so that is definitely more intense than my training. Now, we all know that our military docs are out there treating sick and injured service people, both at home and abroad. But most of us don't know what that really entails. Yeah, so military uh, emergency medicine. So for one, the military emergency medicine physician is probably one of the most deployed medical specialties, uh, which can kind of plug and play us almost anywhere, right? So I've been on three deployments now. The first was with the Army. I was kind of far forward with the Army medevac dust-off folks on the Blackhawks in Afghanistan. Second deployment uh, was in 2015, came back in 2016. Uh, But at that time, I was with the Air Force pararescuers, uh, the PJs, who were in Kuwait and Turkey, again, doing far forward medicine. And then the third deployment, which was last year, I was with the Navy and uh, the Horn of Africa, so in East Africa. So that's the thing, right? So you can kind of deploy us almost anywhere. The days of military physicians not seeing the front line which is kind of how it used to be, are long gone, right? Because now what we know is that the sooner I can get like that advanced medical capability to the patient closer to the time of injury or the point of injury, the better they tend to do. Uh, so now, for instance, when I deploy, I deploy with my paralytics. I deploy with all my area medications. I have to learn how to do damage control resuscitation far forward, sometimes with very limited resources. I have to learn how to transfuse my patients. Uh, when I was deployed in Turkey in 2015, I had to set up the walking blood bank for for the whole five, basically, right? I've never set up a walking blood bank. That's uh, I think I skipped that day in, in residency, right? So, uh, so those are the things that as a military EM doc that you kind of have to pick up uh, in addition to uh, your emergency medicine residency. And I think the Air Force does a really good job of kind of putting you in the right places training-wise to get that additional skill set with training and pre-deployment stuff and all that other good stuff. So, so it's a bit different, right? So I can take a lot of the skills that I have here stateside and then I have to be able to adapt and apply it what we call downrange, so in a deployed environment, right? Something as simple as intubating a patient, right? A patient that comes into the emergency department, say, for instance, something like a pneumothorax, right? Here in the States, I may just sit on a very small pneumothorax, get repeated chest X-rays, put them on maybe a nasal cannula, and the patient doesn't necessarily need a chest tube, right? Well, that's on the ground at like sea level, right? I take this exact same patient, put them up at 30,000 feet, that pneumothorax that was simple becomes not so simple in flight, right? And being able to manage things on the ground is so much better for you and your team, right? I don't want to put a chest tube in at 30,000 feet because it's cramped, it's dark, it's loud, things are moving, right? So those things I kind of have to take into consideration in what we call pre-flight planning, like going through all the labs very quickly, going through all the imaging very quickly to say, is there something I need to do like a chest tube or a central line, A line, that needs to be done here on the ground versus waiting to do it up at altitude? (laughs) Another thing that I found to be very interesting is A lines, right? We kind of take that for granted, right? I'm so used to just putting the catheter in and just kind of standing there with my finger on the other end of the catheter, 
waiting for the nursing staff to set up the A-line tubing, pressure bags, zero it, and all that other good stuff. Well, it's only three of you on the team sometimes, so you kind of become the nurse, the respiratory therapist, and you have to be the doc as well, obviously. So I've had to set up many A-lines, right? And it's like, well, what do I do this? Where, where do you zero this thing at? Which stupid stopcock comes off this thing, right? But all those things that, as a doc, you don't really worry about it because someone else kind of does that. Well, you have a whole team of people here back in the States. You can't just pull over and consult someone at 30,000 feet, right? So that kind of changes your perspective on how you do things with military emergency medicine. But it's fun. And you have to be able to treat not only people, but you have to be able to treat like canines as well. My very first patient transport, right? So I was in Afghanistan. Uh, we went to pick up patients. And that's all I knew was with patients. It was multiple patients from a gunshot wound. So I get there and I walk into this tent. I'm ready. It's one of my first patient transports. Let's do this. I read about it, right? I get there and I look into the back of the tent and like, there's just like all this ruckus in the back, right? There's a bunch of people in the back. There's a patient back there, but I can't really see who it is. So I come walking through with my medic, like the sea kind of parts. And when they part, it's a dog, right? And I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with this thing, right? So, <laughs> right? so then I immediately went back to the training and they had a tourniquet on the dog's leg because uh, he had been shot through the front leg, right? So I remember from the training that tourniquets don't work on dogs, right? But again, that's just something as a military EM doc, you just have to know, right? Because we have to transport military working dogs as well because they have rank and all this other good stuff, right? And we invest a ton of money into those dogs. And somebody has to be able to transport them because they are part of the very valuable part of the team. Right. So managing critical patients and their arterial lines and ventilators at 30,000 feet and treating dogs with gunshot wounds. These are definitely not things that are in my wheelhouse. So let's dive a little deeper into some of the things that our military EM docs see that we are pretty unfamiliar with here in the U.S. So blast injuries become the really, really big thing, right? So, and depends on how close you are to said blast kind of determines uh, a lot of times your outcome, right? If you're very close to it or you step on the IED, well, here in the States, we may see like a bit of like penetrating trauma, uh, mostly blunt trauma. There you see a lot of penetrating trauma, right? Because these bombs go off and things fly, right? Things fly. You fly into things, things fly into you. So not only do you have like the extremities that are gone, so massive blood loss, but you also have burns, you have inhalation injury, you have intra-abdominal injuries, so all those different things, right? So for instance, you take that patient that stepped on that IED, uh, low extremities, for instance, are kind of mangled, they're bleeding, so getting tourniquets on those patients, and then trying to take that patient that has probably some degree of a pulmonary control because what we know is the closer you stand to that blast, all air-filled cavities will eventually be affected, right? Ears probably being the more common, sinuses, lungs, the GI tract. So not trying to fly that patient whose sats aren't doing very well on the ground, putting that same patient at altitude, I know I'm going to struggle with that vent. I know I'm going to struggle to keep that patient oxygenated. So it's just those things that, again, I don't have to take into consideration here in the States because they're at sea level for the most part. That changes the dynamics of my patient transport. As an EM doc, I think we're very well trained, very well equipped to take care of that patient in the damage control resuscitation phase, because that's a lot of times what we're doing here in the States, right? Knowing that we're minimizing crystalloids, trying to get to blood products as quickly as possible. Things like a one-to-one-to-one ratio as closely as possible. And when it really hits the fan, we transfuse whole blood downrange, right? So that's why that setting that massive, though, that walking blood bank up was critical to the base, right? Because... I had only limited blood supply there, right? And when you get removed that far from like a big hub base, 
your resources are very limited, right? So then if we need extra blood more than I have on, on hand, then that's where that walking blood bank come in at. And then we just start transfusing whole blood, right? So stuff that we don't do necessarily back here in the States, which kind of changes your focus just a bit. You become your own blood bank, right? Because I had to go in every day and check the blood refrigerator and cool and make sure everything was at the right temperature and what to do if it wasn't at the right temperature. Again, things that we don't take into consideration in residency, you got to do that because it's just, it's just you and your team, right? You don't have the blood bank there that fall forward in a tent in Afghanistan, right? So those things change just a bit. So let's talk about how military EM has changed over the years, say, since the days of MASH. What I was doing is kind of what we call point of injury uh, medicine. For instance, you get blown up. I'm coming to where you are. Like I'm on a helicopter coming far forward to the dirt and picking you up there. Right. So therefore bringing medicine to where the patient is versus trying to get the patient and get them out of there. Right. So if you look back to, say, Vietnam, right, uh, patient gets injury at point X. It would take weeks for this patient to make it from the point of injury Back to the States, right? So obviously mortality suffered for, because of that, right? If you looked at like the height of like conflicts in Afghanistan and things like that back in like the early 2000s, it would take about on average four days or so for you to get from the time of injury back to the States with multiple surgeries in that whole transport phase. Like our military medical system has changed dramatically, right? From point of injury care, our medics are absolutely amazing in what they do, right? Uh, teaching these folks how to intubate and resuscitate more importantly and how to stop the bleeding more importantly. We push surgeons and the surgical capability far forward, right? So now you can have damage control surgery and instead of me trying to transport a stable patient, I can transport a patient that is being stabilized, right? Which is way different, right? Because now I can move you a heck of a lot quicker versus saying, look, we've missed the window opportunity. Patient has to sit here for a few days and hopefully we can kind of get things kind of teed up from the move. Well, you may have missed that sweet spot, right? Because I don't have like advanced ventilators fall forward. I don't have true ICU capabilities fall forward. If for whatever reason your kidneys get shot, I don't have, definitely don't have dialysis fall forward. Uh, then you start thinking about imaging. Well, we have ultrasounds fall forward, but a lot of times I may not have a chest x-ray. I definitely don't have CT fall forward. MRI, that's not happening, right? So I need to get the patient moved as quickly as possible and as safely as possible to those additional capabilities. Uh, and that's where we come from as EM docs is that we can go far forward uh, and start to move those patients closer to where they need to be and get them home to their family as quickly as possible. So what Rod does is pretty amazing, and I can see how it would appeal to a lot of emergency physicians. But it definitely comes with its share of challenges. Well, so a big challenge with any person in the military is the deployment tempo, right? Because when I came here, they were like, well, you know you're going to be deploying. I was like, well, that's that's I signed up for it. I love deployments. I love the bonding of deployments uh, and then the medicine that we do downrange. But it's just, it's still a deployment, right? And right now, deployments are six months. But then you do a whole slew of training, pre-deployment training before that a lot of times isn't calculated into that, right? So, so you're gone from home quite a bit. So if you have family, friends, and all that, you're gone from that amount of time. So, so that's, I think, one of the biggest downsides. Another thing is a lot of times where we're going, it ain't the most nicest places, right? Yeah, it may be sand, but it definitely ain't no beach, right? So the Air Force will pay all, it's an all-expense-paid trip to wherever you want to go that the Air Force sends you. And it's in that confined space, sometimes in a tent, very limited resources. So you got to get used to like MREs, all that other good stuff. Like we said in the military, sometimes you just have to embrace the suck because that's what it is. And it's a team effort and we're all doing it together. But the bonding is absolutely amazing. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I'm still friends with all the folks that I've deployed with. And it's just great. Again, the downside is just being away from home 
home and then resource limitations, right? So you push me far forward. I mean, yes, Amazon Prime does deliver, <laughs> but that, that, that one day delivery is not an option, right? So I have to sit back and I have to wait for stuff to come. And that's not just my Amazon Prime stuff on my care packages, but that's also patient medical supplies, right? So we had one instance where, and it's the growing pains with getting new bases set up, right? So we had just gotten to a new base and was kind of getting the electricity and all that stuff set up. And I had all my blood and somebody accidentally hit the wrong switch, right? And it killed power to not just the lights, but all the power in the tent, which means that all my blood just got lost, right? So and it's like, I really needed that, though. So then now I have to reach back and say, so how do we get a resupply of blood if we need it? We have the walk-in blood bank and stuff, but I need to get new stuff on its way here. Uh, so, and again, it ain't just a, it'll be there in a few hours thing because they can't just drive it to you. That will physically spin up a whole plane and crew to get that stuff to you, and then it has to move through the system. So that's the thing, too, is not being able to get supplies. So I know here sometimes when you really need something, you get frustrated, but it may only be an hour or two before they can go find it. Or if I need this extra, like, A-line catheter, I may be mad when I open the cabinet and it ain't in there. But I know within an hour I'm going to have it or within minutes I'm going to have it. That is not the case downrange. It will be sometimes a week before you get certain things. So being able to adjust and adapt can become an issue as well. Now, here at UC Davis, we're really lucky, and we get to work with several of these current and future military EM physicians through our partnership with the Air Force. And Rod is intimately involved with this, and he loves to talk about it. It's amazing. In a nutshell, it's absolutely amazing. So I love it here. The residents love it here. So back in 2017, the summer of 2017 was the first set of Air Force interns here. So it is an integrated emergency medicine residency, the fourth in the Air Force. Again, this first was San Antonio, then came Wright Pat. Uh, we're also in Nellis Air Force Base in Vegas. We have two Air Force residents there, should be six now. And then this program came online as the fourth program in 2017. So then we had five shiny residents that came in, and then we just kind of kept building from there. So now we have a complement of about 15, and they're 100% integrated, which means that unless you know that resident is a military resident. They're just like the civilian residents. They do the exact same rotations. They're exposed to really, really sick patients because what the military realizes is, is that we have a lot of healthy people on base. Well, I need you to be able to take care of not so healthy people, right? When I deploy you, you have to be able to take care of these sick, sick folks. And putting the residents in places like this where they're really sick, not only trauma patients, but sick medical patients as well. Because I transported patients downrange with chest pain and all that other good stuff, right? So we have to be able to take care of these really, really sick medical and trauma patients before we can safely deploy you downrange. And that's where this partnership was born from. And it's, it's, it's actually been absolutely amazing. I can say without hesitation that when the residents graduate from this program and the Air Force puts them anywhere, they will be successful and they will do extremely well and take care of the folks that really, really need it downrange and stateside as well, but more so downrange. So, and that's the beauty of it. And that's why we're here. I hope you found this interview as fascinating as I did. I know it's a bit longer than our usual heartbeats, but thank you so much for listening. And as always, if you like what you hear, please check us out on iTunes, subscribe, rate us, and leave us a review. It helps other people find our podcast. And you can connect with us on social media at Impulse Podcast. So thanks to the UC Davis Department of Emergency Medicine and our amazing Air Force partnership. And thank you to OM Audio Productions. We'll catch you next time.